Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. Huge shout out to our team today, to Shali Pittman, to our our great folks who are you know making this show happen our engineer john our producer jade our receptionist steve as you all know the 2024 election season officially kicked off with the iowa caucus yesterday coldest caucus you know in the history of recorded temperature during caucuses i hope you all are staying warm here in wisconsin the spring primary is just five weeks away on February 20th, as we prepare for this election year, I'm welcoming Professor of Journalism Sue Robinson on the show to talk about the role of local journalism in political news coverage. Sue, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. This is this is such an honor. Oh, it's just cool to get to have like a, a conversation with you and to talk about kind of the role of local journalists at this time. Um, what was your response to, to yesterday's caucus, to, to what happened in Iowa? Well, I don't think we learned anything surprising <laughs> about what happened. Um, I was noticing in particular the media coverage of it, and it was pretty normal in terms of um, like what national journalists have been doing for years and years and years. And I was a little disappointed that we didn't see some more uh, experimentation, um, given that here we are in 2024 and we have an opportunity to cover this kind of election in a much different way um, than we did pre-COVID. What are you hoping will be the difference between how this election is covered and maybe, you know, the, the election of 2016 or the election of 2020? So one of the things I do is called applied research. Um, and that means that when I um, data collect, I'm doing it in collaboration with different community partners. Um, and so I work with a bunch of different organizations like Trusting News, Harkin, Solutions Journalism Network, Spaceship Media. And for the last five to 10 years, uh, they have been rigorously training more and more mainstream journalists um, into engagement practices, right? And that means like building different kinds of relationships with different kinds of community groups. Because we learned in 2016 um, during Trump's first election that, that, which surprised a lot of people, right? Um, That journalists didn't have a good, a good way of knowing what all of their audiences were thinking. And so there was this massive transformation that was happening in the industry. Really the first one that I've seen in a century, obviously I'm not a century old, but in terms of the research. Um, And so all of these trainers and these people that I'm working with have been doing massive trainings with all different kinds of newsrooms in the United States. And so I'm hoping that some of those practices that we call engagement journalism and solutions oriented journalism will start to um, change the, the political discourse that we see in America. When you think about kind of the the Trump era of, you know, modern media um, and how kind of Donald Trump or, or former President Trump has been able to dominate uh, press and has, has used that strategically to uh, captivate an American audience. What what level of kind of, I guess, restraint do do folks need um, so that somebody cannot weaponize media uh, to promote their their politics, to promote themselves as a candidate? Or um, is is it kind of a free-for-all and should it be a free-for-all? Is it kind of a space where whatever captures people's attention, um, that's what we look at? How do, how, how do we balance um, 
you know, I guess the the need to acknowledge that something is interesting or provocative or that people want to pay attention to it um, and balance that with, you know, accurate information and kind of news as a resource and tool that people can can leverage to make informed decisions. Can I just say, Ali, that that is the question that all of these newsrooms across the United States are asking themselves right now. Um, and we've been sitting in on some editorial meetings where people are thinking about how are we going to handle it uh, when misinformation and lies and racism and all of that happen in these political speeches? How do we cover that? We don't want to be giving that more air. But on the other hand, um, we need to stay relevant to all of the different constituents in our communities. And if we call out the lies and racism, are we then going to lose all that and contribute to the massive polarization in terms of news consumption? Um, and so so we, we try to... Um, consult with these newsrooms and provide different ways of thinking about it. And I'm happy to get into some real specifics if you want. But I will just mention that we have a lot of data about how um, community members throughout the United States are only listening to news that reinforces their own values, right? And so for the really for the first time in our history before, besides the colonial period where we had a partisan press, uh, we have these silos of mainstream public spheres, one that's dominated by conservative uh, news organizations like Fox News and one that's dominated by what some people would consider liberal or mainstream news. Um, in, in Wisconsin alone, we have 28% um, of Republicans and 14% of Democrats who are not regularly exposed to opposing views at all, either in media or in their conversations. But I will also say that 39% of Wisconsinites are not looking at any news at all. And that those numbers come out of my colleagues, um, so my school and, and my colleagues there, particularly the Center for Communication and Civic Renewal. They, they do amazing work. And if you're interested in more nuances about that, check that out. Um, and so, yes, we need, it should not be a free-for-all. We need to go into this election thinking about coverage very intentionally, and newsrooms need to start having that conversation now if they haven't already. I think the the hard thing about that conversation is getting it right. And I think getting it, it right in an atmosphere that is particularly hostile towards the press um, adds an additional layer of pressure. It wasn't just kind of the spread of misinformation that really shaped um, the 2016-2020 elections. It was also the, the term fake news, which was coined by Donald Trump um, aggressively and really kind of put... I think a lot of journalists on, on the defense in terms of the, the quality of their work and their contribution to the polarization of our nation long term. Um, when you talk about kind of how people are represented on the news, I as a person of color, as a black person in America, I don't look to the news to feel like I, as a member of this community, am going to be accurately represented. In fact, I am hyper aware of the over-representation and association of black people with crime, with violence, um, with poverty, uh, that narrative seems to be reinforced over and over again, both by what people would consider to be uh, left-leaning journalism and by more conservative news outlets. Talk a little bit about kind of the 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 overall you know media contribution to some of the ways we think about each other in terms of race in our community. Right. And actually, there are some numbers that came out of Pew um, Research Center back in September 2023 that almost two thirds of the black adults say news about black people is often more negative than news about any other race or racial group. Um, and 28 percent say it is about equal and only 7 percent say it's it's positive. Um, and in that number continues when you're thinking about um, coverage of different kinds of issues. Um, 43% say the coverage is largely stereotyping of black people, far higher than the 11% who say it's largely does not stereotype. So we know we have this problem, um, but journalists also have the problem of other constituent groups like um, rural conservatives, um, like immigrant populations, like all kinds of other groups as well. Um, they've had a history of not reporting on those groups in a way that those groups feel is accurate. 
And we know this, right? And we've, we've had these numbers since the 60s, right, with the Kerner Commission. Um, and so the responsibility, I think, for journalists is like, how do you cover an election like the one we're about to have that balances um, all of these different constituents, you know, needs, while also making sure you're calling out um, problematic coverage when you see it, making sure you're call- calling out problematic um, phrases and speeches and and proposals and all of that. Um, and that, that to me, is, mo- is going to be the most important thing. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, and I am live on the air, live in the studio, with Sue Robinson, who is a professor of journalism. She's the author of News After Trump and How Journalists Engage, among other titles. Her expertise is in encouragement journalism, solutions journalism, and building journalists' audience relationships. Sue, I, I wanted to really dive into kind of the the conversation around what local media means to a national election, to a presidential election. And and I think I wanted to have that conversation because I think when you look at kind of uh, the, the presence of journalism in, in Madison, I think you can argue that there is this kind of robust local conversation that is happening do you think madison um and the the kind of journalism that is happening locally distinguishes itself from trends nationally and if it does how yeah that's a great question because first i want to say that local journalism just like national journalism is in danger and a lot of people actually don't realize uh, the economic constraints that our local journalists are having in most of these newsrooms are have contracted 60% or more in terms of the number of reporters that are out there able to even cover situations like this, um, different kinds of elections and issues. Um, and so that's first off is to, to make sure that people understand, you know, what is happening in our local journalism ecosystem. Um, but that said, we our, our Madison market is media saturated in a way that so many other communities are dealing with news deserts, um, with with a lack of information, and so they're turning into talk radio and they're turning into, you know, the the news, the national cable stations, which we know, you know, are problematic in all kinds of ways. It's local journalists that most people trust, and in in Madison itself, we have so many wonderful news outlets here, and they're doing such incredible work. Um, and I I urge people to sort of take a look if you haven't tuned in to the isthmus or the cap times or the wisconsin state's journal or channel 3000 or or whoever it is that that you're interested in doing tune in now because they're all doing really really interesting things um i'll just mention a couple so wisconsin watch which is a nonprofit investigative um, news center um, they've paired up with wpr madison 365 um, and the national vote beat um and and some kind of um, a fact-checking organization. And so they're going to hire somebody just to cover Wisconsin politics here. Um, and they're very interested in making sure that's engaged, meaning that they're t- talking to as many people uh, as possible in order to amplify all kinds of issues um, and also solutions-focused, right? And then I'll also say um, people should tune into Channel 3000 has their um, reality check, which is actually one of the first fact-checking projects, I guess you should say, um, in the nation. It was established back in 2004. That's still going strong. So if you're interested in, like, getting what's actually accurate, you should check those out. And then I also wanted to share, I I was talking to... um, one of my um, colleagues over at the Capitol Times um, asking them, like, what are you planning on doing for this election coverage? And I was really fascinated by what they're they're talking about. So if you don't mind, do you mind if I just share what they're doing? Please, that's why you're here. Tell us what's going on. All right. So they started their planning for 2024 election last year by asking themselves how they wanted their readers to think of coverage when the election's all over. What do we not want them to think of us? That's what he's saying, right? Um, and that answer to that question helped us establish this vision. And so what they will not do, they've promised, is focus on horse races, draw into false stakes, um, making a, a platform for harmful rhetoric and disinformation, uh, focus on campaign and candidate strategy, 
um, insider in the bubble kind of stuff or boring. So that's what they don't want to do. And instead, they're going to employ all these strategies. This is so great, Ellie. They're going to create a people's agenda driven by issues that rise to the surface and are relevant to the elections. Now, what does that mean, right? That means that they're going to go out and get as many, many people to add their voice about what they want the, the candidates to be talking about, right? And not just the national election, but local officials, um, which we have, I think we have four elections this year that are coming up. Um, and that people's agenda will also help them um, not only ask the candidates, hey, this is what your constituents actually want you to talk about, right? So circumventing the sort of official narrative of these campaigns and really getting at, you know, what is it that real people um, need to understand these candidates are going to do? And then even afterwards, um, people's agenda, because it's part of this national program, um, that's why I know so much about it. Also, it's in my, my book, that How Journalists Engage. Um, but anyway, it's also after they get elected, holding them to account to make sure they're going to put into place the, the different proposals, initiatives that you talked about on the campaign trail. But then they're also using Google Form surveys. Uh, they're following up with respondents, acknowledging their participation. Even if they don't use them in the story, they're going to go back and say, here's what your words meant, right? This is how we thought about it. This is how it, it, it contributed to a, the political discourse. Um, creating the Lekins Fokins newsletter. Uh, consistently adding helpful context and links, fact-checking. I mean, the list goes on. And I, I feel like there's a part of me that just wants to be idealistically really excited yeah. about a list like that <laughs> and what it'll mean in a place like Madison. And then there's a part of me that in the last, you know, six years, um, I ran for, for school board for the first time in 2017 when I was 2019, or when I was 29. Um, and at that time... Um, the person who was doing the education beat had been doing it for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he left about a year later and it was literally is a tragedy. Miss him still. And I've seen great people step into that role, um, but not stick around. So when you read off a list like that and you go, wait, our local press is in danger. You're seeing a ton of turnover. You're seeing real issues being able to staff and stabilize local media. How do you fulfill something like that in this current moment? Oh, it's so tricky. And I don't envy being a journalist today. I was one for 13 years and now I get to study them. Um, but it's so difficult. However, one of the things I talk about in this new book that had come out in May called How Journalists Engage, A Theory of Trust Building, Identities, and Care, is, is this need to not put it all on one person, right? So, so a lot of newsrooms have that one person that's all about engagement journalism, and that's great. And then they leave, and all of those people that they engage with are like, well, wait, what? Um, and so what has to happen is this policy, this value, has to go through the entire um, hierarchy at the newsroom, right? So, which is why these trainings um, that I study and evaluate in collaboration with these different organizations, they require an editor or a manager alongside reporters to take the training so that it embeds those values into the entire news outlet system. And it's not just about one person. And the problem is, I think, and when I talk to journalists about like, well, why didn't you do more with this part of the training or what prevented you from, you know, doing this or that? And they'll say, well, I, had, I didn't have time because I still had to do all of the regular stories, right? And the regular stories, they mean like poll stories, fundraising stories, things that we might call game frame stories where it's all about like who's winning and who's losing and doesn't get to the critical issues that we really need discourse on. And I'm saying to them, we're, we're asking you to replace those stories. Um, so it's really just a kind of fundamental transformation in how we do journalism and making different priorities um, that value different kinds of skill sets rather than just like using the sound bites from the campaign trail. I want to lean into that a little bit because I think when folks blame media for the creation of Donald Trump or the, the creation of any kind of household name, you're not just talking about the press that that individual got. You're also talking about a phenomenal or, or a culture in which if somebody is living in poverty and they commit a crime, they are more likely to be on the news than if they are a millionaire and they commit a crime. Um, how, how do we kind of evenly distribute the the way we look at people um, 
and in terms of shifting the way people perceive reality in general. I mean, I think one of the things that I think is hard to talk about when you talk about local journalism specifically is how much power local journalists have. And I think it's hard to talk about that because anybody who's ever spent time with local journalists knows that um, these are folks who work really hard that aren't usually paid very well, um, you know, and and yet there is a, a tremendous amount of authority in what journalists cover. How do you how do you teach the young people you're working with to manage that power and that authority and to challenge themselves in terms of uh, the narratives that they promote? Yeah, that's such an important question. And one of the things that this engagement journalism movement has been so great at, I think, is identity training, bias training, um, understanding about how power dynamics play out in all of the different systems that they're covering. And so this what can happen um, in this sort of ideal utopian journalistic world that I'm, I'm painting for you is that journalists um, start to educate themselves about these different kinds of um, ways in which you know, like the education system can be very problematic um, in terms of like who who can get access to the best resources within a school. Low expectations, um, disciplinary rates are 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 um, have their disparities with those between the different kinds of races. And so, what journalists can do is educate themselves and then integrate that sort of background into a story so that instead of like covering, you know, here's a proposal that this candidate has for solving, I don't know, climate change or whatever, <laughs> we, we could only hope. Um, they can then take it and say, all right, well, here are the people in which are going to be left out of this solution, right? And so once you start rethinking about coverage with a justice frame or a, a power frame, now all of a sudden you're seeing the same questions in a, in, from a different perspective. And that happens by listening, right? And doing community listening sessions like the one you, you had come into one of my class um, this past fall. Thank you so much for anytime <laughs> for hanging out. It was a blast. Yeah. And so during that session, I'm teaching the students no phones, no computers. We're just going to listen to our guest, right? And we want to listen to their story and we want to value their lived experience just as much as we might value that report that comes out of the education system, which we know to be fundamentally problematic, right? And so it's that kind of shift in perspective that all these trainings are also doing with working journalists. And it's amazing that once you start doing this work where you're talking to more community members, you're really thinking about these stories from a more community-based side um, perspective, that's when their perspective starts changing and the coverage itself starts changing. I, I think about kind of how much of of this is dictated by your audience's appetite. Yep. Um, and, and I think about kind of the, the complexity right now in, in saying, you know, do people want accurate information? Do people want to hear balanced information? Do people and, and what what are people looking to media for? You talked about social media um, and, and people having a major influence locally via social media. Um, how does that factor into 2024? Will will the press be be working with and against social media? How do how does that how does that change the landscape in terms of local journalism um, when you add something as powerful as social media into the mix? Right. Well, social media has completely changed everything for journalists from their um, economic base um, to the way that in which they market their stories, right? So I think social media is just a tool like anything else, right? So it's not only contributing to the polarization that we're having, and of course, the rampant spread of misinformation. Um, but if you ask people, like 60% of them say that they want a neutral, um, accurate sort of accounting, right? They're not like going online looking for lies, right? But they're feeling frustrated. 
And so I think journalists need to do some audits of their own audiences. Who who are they reaching? Who are they not reaching? Why are they not reaching that? Like through some local surveys or doing some focus groups? Well, absolutely. But I think if you just kind of take anecdotally the example of like, if people were really interested mm-hmm. in accurate information, wouldn't cinemas be showing documentaries <laughs> on a regular basis instead of Marvel movies? Like, aren't people, don't people just kind of preference like the fantasy or the thing that comforts them because it it aligns with their worldview I can understand saying you you want the truth um, but can we handle the truth I mean in the words of Jack Nicholson do is are we saying that because it sounds good or are we saying that because that's what it means and if we want the truth do we have to dress it up and, and make it interesting in order for people to to click on it when there's a thousand other things to click on yeah I mean, and we've talked about this for generations, right? I mean, we need to give you your broccoli along <laughs> with your Sunday, right? Um, and that's true, right? And I don't think it's an either or. I don't think we have to do either Marvel movies or documentaries. Can we have like a mix of both? I think most people probably would, would enjoy that. Um, but that said, and that's not really, I don't know as much about like the entertainment stuff, but I will say that people... Um, they know what they want. They don't want to be bored, right? So I think we also have to think in journalism, how do we make these stories interesting and compelling? And part of that is relevance, right? Are you making these stories relevant to wide swaths of people? And what does that content look like for your audiences, for what who, who you want to be reaching? And that changes, of course, for every every single news outlet. Um, but I want to I want to talk about a little tiny experiment that we did uh, last summer or the summer before. It might have been the summer before. But we worked with nine different journalists around the country, and we asked them, "We want you to go out and just talk or really listen to people who are completely disengaged from your brand." And then we asked them to choose a group that they wanted to expand into. So about half of those nine picked conservatives that they wanted to to reach those disengaged voters or disengaged consumers. And the other half um, chose people of color, either African-Americans or immigrants or, or whatever. So they went out and they they talked to these people for an average of 45 minutes. All right. And we we schooled them. We were like, you can't say anything. You can't get defensive. You can't explain anything. You are just there to listen to what they said. And so what we did is we got the transcripts um, of those community conversations and all we had, I think we did 87 of them um, all together. So it was a lot, right? And my research partner and I were reading through them and they were vitriolic. I mean, these people were angry for a lot of different reasons at journalists and they were kind of yelling at them. I was really impressed with the journalists that they kept their cool. We actually ended up having a focus group of all those journalists and turned into a therapy session, to be honest, (laughs) right? Just Um, like recover from from this assignment. But then we also did a survey with the community members after that conversation. And we asked them, what did this conversation mean to you? And in that survey, we had 86% of them said that that conversation, that little 45 minutes, made them trust that organization. And a third of them said that they were thinking of subscribing. Now, that is huge, right? To go from like, I hate you to, hey, maybe I'm going to give you $10 a month, right? (laughs) Or or whatever it is. Um, And so that's the power of listening. And that's where I think this this sweet spot is, right? In terms of like helping people understand, here's the information that we can provide. We're going to give you to it in a really interesting way. You know, we can be both for you. We can be both entertaining, but also... um, you know, give you the news that you need in order to make an informed decision at the at the polls. I mean, how to be entertaining and informative. And that that's the sweet spot, right? And I think in journalism or in education, I think so many teachers are like, how can I get these young people to care right. about, you know, the capital of every state when they have TikTok? <laughs> um, you know, if you are out there and you want to join this conversation, you have questions for Sue Robinson about local media, you have questions about the role of the press um, in the 2024 election. We want to hear from you. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. The number to get a hold of us to join this conversation today is 608-256-2001. Give us a ring. 
our amazing engineer will patch you through. Um, we would love to, to hear your questions. We would love for you to get to be a part of this conversation. Sue, when you think about kind of the the journalist in our community that you love like tuning into, you love hearing from them, you love what they write, um, you think they're really good listeners. Who are those people who stands out to you locally in media that you go, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to read this person. I'm going to follow this person's career intentionally. Oh, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you got to name everybody? Yeah. You're like, I've had a lot right. of people in class. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of them in class. And also, I just think that our local media is so good. And I don't feel like people really recognize that, that they're, they're well-trained and they um, really, really care, you know. And I'm just thinking... Um, Do you think local media in Madison has done a good job historically of of covering communities of color? Oh. (laughs) I I think it's great to think that they're great. Yeah. No, I wrote a book about that. I don't know if you had a chance to ever look at it. (laughs) Is that why you're asking this? It came out in 2018. Um, and it was called Network News Racial Divides. And it talked about how like the progressive ideology in this town had created these sort of information circles that really dominated coverage around particular um, white progressive groups, right, and, and politicals. And in that process, um, particularly African-Americans and also immigrants' voices were... Mm, kind of ignored, or at least outside of the mainstream sort of information cycling. But I'll tell you what, Ali, at the end, towards the end of me writing that book, um, we had Madison 365. Mm -hmm. um, And that came about in 2015. And I think they almost single-handedly changed the conversation that was happening about communities of color in Madison. Um, And in that process, we all of a sudden, we went from... um, a minor- we went to a minor- minority majority school board and city council, I think, right, over the last few years. And that has completely changed what we talk about and how we think about different kinds of systems in this community. So I've seen a huge change because when that happened, when Madison 365 started, you know, really covering issues around race um, for all different kinds of BIPOC people, you started seeing the Isthmus, the Cap Times, the Wisconsin State Journal, and Channel 3, that all of these different news organizations like responding to that. And they were they were on their way, right? But I think there was this real quick, and then of course 2020 happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. And now all of a sudden, you know, you start seeing, you know, all kinds of different um, initiatives. Um, for example, the so I want to do my own little fact check right there <laughs> because I'm like the the Black Lives Matter movement <laughs> yeah. starts with Trayvon Martin sure. in you know the yeah, yeah, the yeah. early teens of the 2000s, right. right? So it's it's a movement that at this point is about a decade and a half That's old, right. um, and and is really uh, about brutality aimed at people of color, That's the right. de- decriminalized killing of people of color, particularly black men, um, but. But yes, no, and You're right. we have a caller, so I'm like, I'm gonna turn okay. it back over to you, right. and then Thanks we're gonna bring our check. friend on. I appreciate the fact check. So, you were saying, oh, yes. So, so I was saying that, for example, Isthmus, um, they now have like a Spanish uh, um, election guide, right? It's those little things that are starting to happen more and more that we didn't really see happening before. But I totally appreciate what you're saying. I'm just saying that when that became this sort of global sort of discourse that was happening, you started seeing changes in really mainstream legacy organizations. I I like the fact that we can be kind of hopeful in this conversation. I do think we've we've got a long way to go in terms of local journalism being representative of our entire community not just in the stories that we're telling but in who is telling them and kind of the diversity among local journalists tony i want to welcome you to the show thank you so much for joining us on a public affair today on wort 89.9 fm are you staying warm my friend well uh, yes i am and thank you very much uh, one of the uh, at the beginning of your show your your guest was mentioning uh, uh, the great news culture we have in madison but but she omitted one one news source, and that's WRT's own news department. I didn't hear her talk about that, and I'm constantly amazed at how uh, we're, we we are able to put out a one-hour daily news program at, every day, four days a week, 
uh, with all volunteer staff. And it's, um, of course, they do a very, a very, very great job. So I just wanted to make sure that Ward uh, got included in this um, journalistic uh, environment. Um, and then I had another question just about in terms of uh, you were talking about balance and, and what what exactly do you mean by balance? Um, the way I look at it is that WRT, uh, um, sometimes we've been accused of, uh, of being a little bit too far to the left or whatever, especially in issues currently like right now, what's going on in Gaza. And um, and I'm like, well, you know, some people have called uh, my show and they're like, oh, well, you got to have such and such a person on or whatever. And my thing is like, well, you know, the rest of the, media environment in the Madison area uh, does not cover a lot of things that WRT covers. And and so I'll, I'll leave it at that. I guess uh, uh, the question is kind of uh, has to deal with the issue of what is considered balanced uh, news. Thank you. I, I, uh, I feel like I want to say I agree with you, Tony. It's a very complicated thing to talk about balance, um, you know, when you have a, a pretty clear perspective. I'm a, I'm a person who would not claim to, to see all sides of everything. I think I have a, a perspective that is specific to my own experiences. Tony, I loved your questions. I want to ask Sue, why did you talk about the incredible journalists at WORT? Um, we got some amazing folks doing, doing work right here. And, and I'm mostly kidding. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. But then also, when you're talking about balance, I actually think this became like a real catch-22 of kind of modern elections, right? Where you want to cover all of the different factors and things that are happening. And that sometimes means that you're covering misinformation um, with the same pen you're using to cover accuracy. Talk, talk a little bit about what balance really means and looks like these days. Oh, thank you so much, Tony, for that question. And I, my bad about work. <laughs> and, I, and I will say, too, there are a ton of actually little news outlets that we haven't, I haven't mentioned. You know, Madison Commons, the Badger Hill, the Cardinal, you know, the Black Voice, you know, all the um, Hughes. Capital City Hughes, I was just going to say, yeah. Yamoja Magazine. Um, La Movida. Mm. Right. There's so much. So many. Right. We're swimming. We're swimming in, in media it's around really here. It's really unusual. We we need to be really grateful that we have all of this media right now, I think. But that said, we can always do better. And let's talk about balance. I believe that um, we the industry's kind of moved towards the term balance away from the term objectivity because objectivity is now so politicized. And of course, we know, <clears throat> excuse me that there's no real thing, no such thing as real objectivity. So they've, they've settled on this term called balance. I, I think there's something to lean into there. And I think when we <laughs> talked more about objectivity, we're talking about a time in which media was dominated not just by white people, but by, by white men. And I think that the the ability of white people to have the authority to declare reality, what is real and what is not, um, is part of the conversation we're having right now. And so, and, and that does get into to, to balance. You're either going to legitimize or delegitimize you're either going to promote or or ignore um how do you do that mindfully thoughtfully with intention and in a way that serves our entire community <laughs> such a loaded question it's so I great know. i, I love it. it yeah i mean you're right you know and that's one reason why objectivity is being being shunned by so many different <coughs> different groups at this point and not just you know, white men, but also propertied literate, right? So that's when the the first values around objectivity grew, and that's who was was participating in this. And that also has since continues to stay in the norms and routines of journalists because who do we consider to be expert, right? Well, people who have credentials, people who have attained office, people who have letters after their name, right? And then that gets into a whole understanding of like, well, who are those people, right? And well, there's all kinds of reasons why a the majority of those people have been in their history, white men. So we have to understand those histories when we're going to report a story. Um, that said, this is something these trainings that I have talked about are taking so seriously. And I'll, I'll say, I'll just call out Trusting News, because which is a free program that all newsrooms um, can use. 
And you go on there and there's all kinds of these trust kits. And for example, one of them is um, an anti-polarization checklist, right? And so it helps news organizations stay balanced without using, like, without um, using loaded terms. And there are all kinds of ways in which you can do that in a way that that continues to, like, beef up the neutrality that might be there. At the same time, we're suggesting that a massive sort of radical transparency happen as a value. And that needs to be explicitly, how did the story get reported? Um, Who is being sourced? Where are these sources' agendas? Being embedded into the stories themselves is possible. Um, And if not possible, like um, in a brightly colored contrast box, right? Because that that research has shown that those are the two things that are most effective in terms of newsrooms figuring out like, well, how are we how are we defining balance? All right, well, here's how we're defining it. It only needs a couple sentences, right? I had something else, but I'll... I, I so appreciate that. And I think we're, you know, I, I've been amazed, you know, when you're talking about trust, and I think that's one of the major themes of, of your newest book, um, I've been amazed at kind of how distrust has been established as kind of a norm. And, and I think about people who still don't believe Biden was elected, who still believe that the election was was stolen, who believe January 6 was people trying to to take back their nation rightfully um, after they had been robbed during an election uh, when all evidence um says that that is not what happened, that 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 election was was won rightfully by by Joe Biden, um, by all counts. How do you combat this this sense of distrust and i know you talked a little bit about just you know somebody sitting down and having a 45 minute conversation can really go a heck of a long way um but that that can't be a a widely embraced strategy exactly so what is the strategy um that gets people to trust each other and again and i think we're living in one of you know people call this one of the most divided times in american history regularly um how do you how do you heal that that divide? How do you get people who maybe don't want to listen to each other to listen to each other? Well, I think it's a lot of lot of little things, right? There's no one magic bullet. Magic bullet. Silver bullet. Silver bullet. Magic mm-hmm. solution. I don't know. Yeah. There's no one thing that's going to solve all of it. It's going to be a lot a lot of little efforts that are happening everywhere, and not just for journalists, right? Community members have this responsibility too. We all have to open ourselves up to a lot of different kinds of news sources and really be critical thinkers in terms of how we judge which information is credible and which sources are spreading misinformation, right? So that ha- that's incumbent upon us as just being voters, right? As people who are operating in our democracy. Um, <clears throat> and then it's also about like, tweaks in language it's about um, just changing um, in terms of how we consider evidence like what evidence is is good evidence right and really making sure that we're hearing those lived experiences from people incorporating that into our our methods and the more that we do that the more that we try to relationship build outside of our typical rolodex of sources the more you're gonna get people to understand your brand as being trustworthy. And, it, and at this point, it's, it's all a relationship game, right? In, in my, the, the work that I do, that's what it shows over and over and over again. Um, and at the same time, um, we, can't, we, we have to call out that the election was not stolen. We have to call out these lies that are happening very explicitly, and then we need to explain why we're doing it in that way, right? And then, more importantly, we can have all of these newsrooms doing all the right things in terms of building trust, but all of these people are no longer listening to them. So how do we get this great new journalism out in front of these different kinds of groups? Well, and that's where that relationship building is matters even more, Right, trying to access informants who have influence within the particular groups that you want to get at and working with them, partnering with them, even doing some content collaboration, right, which which never would have happened 20 years ago, like changing actually how we do the news is where that that trust is going to happen. 
I've heard the free press referred to as the fourth branch of government, as essential to our democracy, um, and as part of what makes America, America. And yet, um, there seems to be a, a growing hostility towards free press, towards journalists in, in the United States. How did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? How did you know that this was what, what you wanted to spend your life doing, that you wanted to talk to people and, and interview people and ask questions, um, even if it meant you weren't going to get paid very well and sometimes people were going to be pretty mad at you? Well, the way you put it like that, I'm glad nobody said that to me. <laughs> Starting out like, heck that, I'm going to go be a business major. No, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a journalist when I was in the sixth grade. And I was working on our little sixth grade news yearbook, I think it was a yearbook. Yeah. Um, and then I just loved stories. I loved storytelling. I loved finding out and learning different things, meeting people, listening to them. I mean, I'm just always surprised at how crazy truth is. You know, like you cannot make up these stories. They're so interesting. And that carried me through with my, you know, I went to school um, in undergrad as a journalism. Now I have three degrees in it. It's like way overkill. Uh, but I just, I've committed my life to it because I believe in it. I believe it is a fourth estate. Um, and that, that term comes from 1950. So we've thought this for a really, really long time, that journalism is essential to our democracy. And when um, former President Trump declared them to be the enemies of the people, remember that phrase back in 2016, 2017, <clears throat> you know, that hit at this real core um, value, right, of our, our democracy that we've held for ever since the beginning of our, our country. Um, and so to see it sort of struggling so much has been has been really difficult. But as you as you mentioned, I'm an optimistic person. <laughs> I'm a class half full person. You know, I really feel like we journalists are pivotal in helping us overcome this polarized information society that we have right now. They're in a great position, right? They've had this history. Um, they, you know, and they're already doing all this great work. I just think that we have to work with like the new realities of digital platforms. We have to work with the new realities of how people are networked and how people are listening and what they listen to and what relevance means. All those things have been changing really radically, um, really quickly. And so that's where the industry is right now. And so that's my job is to help like train and to push um, this profession to be the best that it can be for all the different kinds of voices that you're talking about, Ali. I think one of the things that happens when you talk about um, kind of a, a nation divided is you start to think of like good guys and bad guys, yeah. like all everything about this group of people is great yeah. and everything about this group of people is really, really bad. And you start to forget um, what the good and bad things that both of those groups right. have in common. Um, I often think of, of racism as an American value. Um, that's not a partisan American value. It is, it is value, you know, racism is something that is upheld by Democrats and Republicans. And that's why you can live in a really progressive city and have one of the largest achievement gaps and one of the most disproportionately black jails in the country. When you think about the things that we have in common right now and, and kind of the, the areas in which people can come together and, and really understand one another and really have shared values and work together in community, how do you highlight those conversations um, in a world that is being presented to us as ever more divided? I think it's easy to forget how close we are to each other, how much we have in common, um, and, and kind of the, the good that there is in everybody, no matter who they're voting for oh you got all rainbows and puppies i love it you know i i've gotten to to do yeah. some really political things yeah. across this state and there's people who absolutely do not agree with anything i believe in who have helped me dig my car out of the snow yeah. you know yeah. um and and i do think we've lost a little bit of of our sense of that how do you do you do you think that journalists have have a role in restoring our ability uh, to see what we have in common with one another. I absolutely think journalists are so well positioned to do exactly that. 
Um, there are so much um, different thinking happening around that, not just in um, activist circles, but also there's a book called A Good Conflict by Amanda Ripley, and she talks about how important it is to find those commonalities um, anytime you have you know, severe um, disagreement. And that there is a way to have those dialogues to come back to sort of the Thanksgiving dinner table with our, you know, the the deep divides that often happen in our families and to actually say, hey, we're going to talk about politics tonight and we're going to listen to each other and practice good listening skills like looping and and really trying to understand what the person is saying rather than just figuring like, oh, I'm going to say this next and I'm really going to get them. Right. And so recreating what is it what does it mean to have dialogue in this country? And we have to start that at the dinner table, but journalists can carry that into the public realm in a way that I, I just, um, I'm really hopeful. And I think that a lot of journalists are on board with this, right? One of the things I think is most exciting about 2024 in terms of electoral politics is the ability to have conversations about abortion. Um, abortion has been a hard story to tell. It's been considered taboo or distasteful or too graphic or hypersexual. Um, and and all of a sudden, we're seeing more and more people talk about their personal experiences with abortion. And we're seeing more and more media cover the reality of abortion and miscarriage and pregnancy. We haven't talked much about gender dynamics. I think that's kind of the note I want to want to go out on. Um, how how do you think journalists locally are positioned to to tell that story in a way that we haven't before? Well, I think you know just what's been happening in Wisconsin gives them a story to tell in a really interesting way. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's okay. <clears throat> It's really cold outside. I, I feel like we're all going to be fighting feel, a little something. No, I feel fine. It's just I have a little frog. Um, so at any rate, um, so so gender wise, right? First of all, we have more. We have gender wise speaking, we have more females in journalism than we ever have had before. Um, and they're even just in terms of reporter. I think they're at sixty percent. I'm not okay, ladies. Don't don't fact check me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> on that. Um, but th- that said, that doesn't mean like you know, people identify as male or or other kinds of genders can't cover the abortion story. Um, But that said, you know, we have this infrastructure, just like a lot of states do, but we have these journalists in town who have been around for a really long time, right? And so they know what that, what that story about abortion is and the laws and, and all those personal stories. And so I think using this engagement journalism sort of toolkit or value system allows people to have those really hard stories, right? Because it's hard to talk about an abortion. It's hard to talk about the, the you know, decreasing number of options for women across the country. And what does that actually mean in terms of the control over our own bodies, right? Journalists are particularly, they, they have the they have all. They know all the stakeholders. They know all the histories. Um, they're the ones who can actually bring to bear to everybody. Here's what's actually at stake right now. This is what's happening now. Um, and so I'm, I'll just I'll just end with that because I, I don't have much more profound to say about that except for thank you so much for like for bringing that up and for reminding journalists, I think, that they're really about caregiving in the society um, and they have that role to play and they they are really good at it and they just have to sort of embrace it. Uh, Sue, I could not thank you enough for joining us here today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is A Public Affair. Stay warm, my friends, and thanks for tuning in. Thank you for having me. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it.